All right, for, so finally, at the end, we look to the beginning. So um, I want to spend a few minutes in Psalms 1 and 2 to set up um, some things, in, particularly in Psalm 16. So um, I am, am going to assume that you have at some point uh, studied or maybe memorized or maybe heard someone preach on Psalms 1 and 2. So what I want to do is not walk through the passage. I just want to point out a few things. So such as, and really a lot of this has to do with the interconnectedness of these two psalms. So the first word of Psalm 1, blessed, is the first word of the last line of Psalm 2. Blessed. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And this, again, contributes to this dynamic that I was alluding to between the one and the many. Because in 1-1, you've got blessed is the man. And then in 2.12 at the end, blessed are all who take refuge in him. And it's ashray in both places. It's the same Hebrew term. And this also creates this blessed inclusio around these two psalms, which joins with other features of the two psalms to create a, a profoundly interconnected set of two psalms. So, for instance, right after it says, blessed is the man... Who walks not in the counsel of the wicked? Well, that counsel of the wicked is what we see in 2 1 through 3 when they are taking counsel together in 2 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. So if you ask, what's the counsel of the wicked it, that this blessed man doesn't walk in? Well, it's the rebellion of 2 1 through 3 where they're trying to throw off the reign of Yahweh and his Messiah. And then in 1 1. C, if A is blessed is the man, B is who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, C, nor stands in the way of sinners. This is the way in which the sinners will be destroyed over in or perish in 2.12. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. And then uh, he doesn't stand in the way of sinners nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So you've got these seated scoffers in 1.1. One, one, and in contrast to that in 2.4, the one who sits in the heavens laughs at them. So these humans, they've seated themselves and they're scoffing at Yahweh and his Messiah. And in 2.4, remarkably, surprisingly, Yahweh is scoffing right back and, and holding them in derision in 2.4. Um, um, we, we, could, we could go on this way. There, there are many, many uh, points of connection. There's a scholar who used to teach at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary named Robert Cole, and he's written a book called Psalms 1 and 2, Gateway to the Psalter. The book is about 200 pages long, and it's all on the interconnectedness of Psalms 1 and 2. So there's a lot that could be said about this topic. The, the last kind of thing that I want to say here about Psalm 1 in particular is that this blessed man is likened to a tree planted by streams of water. And um, I... I think that's evoking the garden that Yahweh planted in Eden in the east, and there were these rivers that were, that were there in Genesis 2, 8 through 10. So I think that this is Edenic imagery in Psalm 1, and you have this blessed man who is like the garden of Eden, and then I think in Psalm 2, he's, he's identified as the Lord's Messiah. Um, with that, let me draw your attention to uh, two... Let's start in 2-4. So you see the plot of the wicked, their wicked counsel in 2-1 through 3, 
And then 2, 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, and this is what the Lord says in verse 6, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So it's clearly identifying the Davidic king as the Lord's anointed. And then it seems in verse 7 that the Lord's anointed himself speaks. And uh, at this, before we read these words, I want to remind you that in Acts 4, verse 25, they attribute Psalm 2 to David. And, and so I think that means David is the author of Psalm 2. And before we read verse 7, I also want to call to your minds exactly what the Lord said in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And I want you to listen carefully to what the Lord said in 2 Samuel 7 and compare it with what, what the Lord's anointed says in Psalm 2, verse 7. So 2 Samuel 7, verse, I'll start in verse 13. Let's start in verse 12, actually. The Lord says to David, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your seed after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So just to be clear, Yahweh, through Nathan, is saying to David, I will be to your seed a father, and he, your seed, will be to me a son. And, and to get at the broader biblical backdrop of this in, in Genesis 1 God creates Adam in his own image and likeness and then in Genesis 5 that detail is, is rehearsed uh, God, you know Moses tells us God made Adam in his own image and likeness and then one verse later in chapter 5 verse 3 we're told that when Adam had a when Adam fathered a son Seth he was in Adam's image and likeness this implies, I think, that as Seth, being the son of Adam, is in Adam's image and likeness, so Adam, being in the image and likeness of God, is God's son in a certain sense. Not in the sense that Jesus is, but this, Luke affirms this in Luke 3.38, you know, as he works back through the genealogy, he gets back to Adam and he says, uh, the son of Adam, the son of God. Okay, so... In a certain sense, Adam is the son of God. And then you know that, that um, uh, God said to Moses, go, go say to Pharaoh, let my son go. Israel is my firstborn son. So the people of Israel, in some sense, are regarded as God's firstborn son. And then God says to David that his, his descendant, the future king from his line, will also be, in a significant way, regarded as God's son. Okay? Now, look at Psalm 2, verse 7. The speaker of this psalm, David being the author, David writes, I will tell of the decree. Yahweh said to me, you are my son. Today, I have begotten you. Now, I've, I've tried to highlight the way that in 2 Samuel 7, Yahweh said to David through Nathan, not you, 
will be my son, but he, the descendant, the seed, the offspring, will be a son to me, and I will be a father to him. Now David is writing this psalm. What's going on here? Well, I would propose that David, you could do this a couple of different ways. You could say David has adopted the persona of the future descendant and speaks as that person. Or you might say David the author envisions that future promised descendant whom he will refer to in Psalm 110 as his Lord. David writes as though that person speaks these words. But at whatever, however we put this together, David is writing these words, speaking in the first person singular, but the words that he, that he writes apply really to the seed promised to him, not, not in the ultimate sense to him directly. Everybody clear on what I'm saying there, okay? I think this indicates... That, that David understands the whole, the whole thing. So David gets it that God has promised. This is what Luke, uh, Luke presents Peter saying in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. He says of David, Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to put one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, Peter says in Acts chapter 2. So I think that what Peter says about David is right, that David understands the promises, he understands the patterns, and when you put the promises and the patterns together, I think David understands that when he speaks of himself in the first person singular, yes, it applies to him and the historical literal David, but it's also an installation in a pattern of events that is going to be fulfilled in Jesus. And, and I say that, to take you to Psalm 16. So, and, and you know, I just hinted a second ago that we're headed toward Acts 2. So what I'm, what I'm trying to do here again is understand what's happening in the Psalter that leads um, Peter to make the kinds of claims that he makes in Acts chapter 2. And, and what I want to do is I want to see how we got from the Psalter to Acts 2, and I want to understand the logic that informs Peter making the claims that he makes. So let's start into Psalm 16 here. Psalm 16, a miktam of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to Yahweh, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. So David is refusing the idolatry that some of his contemporaries are engaging in. And then verse 5 is very interesting in light of the kinds of developments that we see in the Old Testament. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. All of this language, inheritance, lines, where those lines have fallen, what is that calling to mind? What is, what is David alluding to here? Bingo. The, the tribal allotments of land. You know, they, they come into the, the, the promised land in, in Joshua. They conquer the land, and then they, they apportion the land 
to the tribes for their tribal inheritance by, uh, you know, casting lots and, and determining the boundaries of the lands. And David says in verse 5, Yahweh is my cho chosen portion and my cup. And then he starts talking about his inheritance, and it's like he's saying, it's like he's saying that who he want, or he wants or has whose inheritance? The Levites, that's right. The Levites, the Lord said of the Levites, they, they don't get any land, I'm their inheritance. And the reason I think this is fascinating is because um, in the garden, Adam was granted dominion by, by the Lord. God blessed them, Genesis 128, and said to them, uh, be fruitful and multiply and uh, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion, which means reign, which means take up the role of a king. So, so Adam is a royal figure. And then in Genesis 2.15, when, um, uh, when Moses writes, um, the Lord God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it, those two Hebrew verbs, um, um, avad, work, and shamar, keep, the only two times those, the only, the only place those two terms are used together elsewhere in the Pentateuch is, is in the description of the duties of the Levites at the tabernacle. And, and I think that, that that casts a sort of priestly hue over Adam's role in the garden. And I would contend, following Greg Beale and other people, Peter Gentry, Steve Wellam, these guys, I would contend that Adam is a royal priest in the garden. He's not explicitly called a royal priest, but he's doing what a king does, exercising dominion, and he's doing what a priest does. Um, I think they, they don't translate it work and keep. They translate it, I think, serve and guard, which are just synonymous ways to translate avad and shamar. And then you have that figure Melchizedek in Genesis 14, who's both king and priest. And then the people of Israel are to be a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And now here's David, who's the king, talking as though his inheritance is the inheritance that belongs to the Levites, Yahweh himself. It's interesting. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless Yahweh who gives me counsel. This again recalls Psalm 1. Um, he doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. He delights in the Torah. That's how Yahweh gives him counsel, through the word. I bless Yahweh who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I think this reflects the fact that David, when he, when he, wake, when he wakes in the night, or maybe even while he sleeps, the scripture that he has memorized, on which he meditates, it keeps uh, communicating with him. And then he says in verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Now, we didn't look at this, but let me, let me take you back to Psalm 2 for just a second and, and draw your attention to the way that in Psalm 2, verse 6, the Lord says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And then look at 3, 4. David says, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. These kinds of interconnections between the Psalms suggest that when David cries out to the Lord while Saul or Absalom or whoever is persecuting and trying to kill him, what David is specifically appealing to is the promise that God made to him. And so for David, it works like this. God said I was going to be king. 
this guy's trying to kill me, and I'm calling on the Lord to keep his word and, to me and keep me alive and establish me as king. And I think that's going on here in Psalm 16 as well. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand, because I'm confident that he'll defend me, he'll protect me, and he'll do what he said and put me on the throne. I shall not be shaken. Verse 9. So, so just to be clear here, I think in part, speaking of himself, David is saying something like this. Saul is not going to kill me. Saul is not going to be able to put me to death because the prophet Samuel anointed me and Yahweh thereby declared, I'm going to be king. So I'm confident Saul will not prevail. Therefore, verse 9, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now some of these statements, they go beyond mere human life, don't they? Um, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So I think in this poetry, at one level, David is saying, verse 10, you are not going to abandon me to Sheol. Saul is not going to kill me, and I am not going to join the realm of the dead. And then kind of implied, until I become king, and then maybe I'll die a natural death just like everybody else does. At another level, these words go beyond those, those, those limited meanings. But here's what I'm proposing. David knows... That God has made this promise to him, and David knows that God has made this promise about his descendant. And David has seen these patterns in the life of Joseph, in the life of Moses, and, and there are others that we could point to. And he sees the patterns in himself, and he expects the patterns to recur in the life of his descendant. Now, look with me over at, at Acts chapter 2. And we'll start reading... At verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. I don't know if you've thought about the logical connection between the, the pangs of death being loosened and it being excuse me, impossible for him to be held by it. I think that the implied uh, inner logic of that is he didn't sin. The wages of sin are, are death. Jesus didn't sin. Death had no claim on him. And then he says, verse 25, look carefully at these words. For David says concerning him, I, saw the Lord always before me. David says concerning him, and then David starts speaking in the first person singular, and if you're, if you're going to be one of these sort of, um, I mean, I think, you know, you could use all kinds of pictures, overly literal interpreters of the Bible, insensitive interpreters of the Bible, you might say, you might object, wait a minute, David's not talking about him at all, David's talking about himself. But to say that thing, that kind of thing, I think, would fail to recognize that in speaking of himself, David is speaking of him. But the, the, 
the necessary idea that makes that claim work is the idea that David understood himself to be a type. And if David understood, he understood the precursors and he understood himself to be a type, then you can say, in speaking of himself, David spoke of him. Because he understood, I'm an installation in this typological pattern that is going to be, it's going to recur and be fulfilled in the life of this descendant that's been promised to me. So then you get the quotation of Psalm 16 in verses 25 through 28. And all through it are these first person singular statements. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also, it goes on. And then look at verse 29. Uh, Luke presents Peter saying, brothers, and again, Peter is trying to persuade people who don't at this point believe in Jesus. Peter is speaking to an audience that doesn't recognize him as an authoritative voice. So this has to be persuasive. And apparently it was because 3,000 people bought it, you know, um, and, and they didn't buy it because Peter had authority, right? They didn't buy it because this is already Bible and, and they just have this attitude of, well, whatever the Bible says, that's what goes. No, Peter is trying to persuade people that don't believe. And he says in verse 29, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And, and what he's saying there is that that text, it might have been, there might have been a sense in which it was true of David's life if you want to read it as David's confidence that God is going to keep him alive until God makes him king and protect him from Saul. But it's not ultimately fulfilled in, in David because he died and we can go to his tomb. Then verse 30, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So I think that Peter is, is, is making the kind of argument that I'm trying to exposit here, that in speaking of himself, he's, David has to be speaking of himself. There's first-person singular pronouns all through there. But in doing that, he's also speaking of the one to come. And he's speaking of the one to come on the basis of the oath that was sworn to him and his wider knowledge of these these Old Testament precursors and patterns and types. Now, I want to I go to Psalm 22, and I want to try to show something similar going on there. And then I want to go to Isaiah and show something similar going on there and uh, make an argument that in all these places, um, you, you've basically got the same kind of dynamic at work. Okay, So if you would, look with me now at um, Psalm 22. And then after we look at, we look, uh, okay, go ahead. Can I stop you on the Acts 2 one just for a second? Yes. Is Peter able to make these connections because of the progress of Revelation? So in one sense, after Christ's death, burial, resurrection, he's able to make the connection because he has greater revelation. Well, I'm going to argue that, so I'm, I'm arguing right now that David understood it. Okay. And I'm going to argue that Isaiah understood it. Um, now, I think that, that these kinds of connections could very well be the kind of thing that, that Jesus exposited on the road to Emmaus. And it's maybe the kind of thing that Jesus opened the minds of his disciples to understand in Luke 24. Um, but I, 
think that David and Isaiah. They should have seen the pattern. They should have, like, if you understood scripture like David, you should see the pattern. Yeah. Peter should have seen the pattern. Maybe he finally does. Maybe he did before. You know, with some of the things he said to Jesus, clearly he did see. That is right. right. That's right. So Psalm 22. I just heard somebody say, maybe it was here at this at this conference. Somebody quoted to me a scholar who had said, well, obviously the New Testament just wrenches Psalm 22 right out of, right of its context. Was that here? Was I talking to somebody here this weekend? Maybe it was last, I, I can't remember who it was, but in the last, within the last seven days, was that here? Within the last seven days, someone said the words to me, the New Testament totally disregards the, the context and original meaning of Psalm 22. And, and, uh, I just reject that reading. Somebody was asking me, who was it? Was it you? Somebody. And somebody named me the scholar. I can't remember who it was. Anyway. Um, yeah. Yeah. At any rate, um, here again, I'm going to argue that David is speaking of himself, but that he is an installation in a typological pattern. So that, so that David knows... When he feels forsaken in Psalm 22, verse 1, and says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think he anticipates, well, Joseph felt forsaken, Moses felt forsaken, I feel forsaken, the seed is going to feel forsaken. Why are you so far from saving me? And then um, look, at, look at verse 7. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in Yahweh. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. This is quoted in Matthew 27, verse 43. These, these statements are all, they just pervade the, the crucifixion narratives. And then um, I'm going to pass over. Well, let, let's start reading in verse 14. David says, I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my jaw sticks to my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. I think that David probably experienced a near-death experience. He he, pro, he was probably in a situation where he was almost killed, and and he's speaking of that experience in these terms. And then he goes on and he says in verse 16, "For dogs encompass me; a company of evildoers encircles me." They have pierced my hands and feet. Um, that last line, they have pierced my hands and feet. It's kind of a disputed interpretation of the Hebrew text. Um, you can see there's a footnote on in the, in the ESV. I, I don't want to get into that issue right now. I don't think it's necessary um, to see David typifying uh, what Christ would experience. Um, I think the, the passage still does that, even, even if you interpret that line some other way. Uh, verse 17, I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Again, this is alluded to in the Passion Narratives. And then the salvation seems to come at the end of verse 21. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. And then after the rescue, so it's like there's this near-death experience from which David has been delivered. And it's almost like resurrection from the dead when he's delivered from that near-death experience. And, and I'm inclined to think that if we had asked David, um, you keep talking about things like the dust of death and then how the Lord delivered you. 
what, what's your conclusion about this? I think he might say, well, um, Joseph, uh, they, they reported back to Jacob that he was dead. And Moses, when he was separate from the people of Israel, he was as good as dead to them, to his family. And, and so in a figurative kind of way, when those guys were brought back, it was like they were alive from the dead. In fact, I think that language maybe is even used in the Joseph narrative. This son of mine was dead and behold, he is alive again. Isn't that language used of Joseph when Jacob realizes that he's alive? Um, and, and I think David might say, if all these patterns are going to be transcended, maybe the seed is going to die and rise from the dead. I, you know, I don't know that for certain, but maybe he had a thought like that. I think it was uh, our brother that just walked in that was talking to me about somebody saying Psalm 22 was ripped out of context in the New Testament. Was that you? Anyway, it's okay. I think we were talking about that the other day. Then, then a transition. Yeah, just drew attention to you. Yeah, good. Verse 22, the transition happens. David says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. Okay, so... He's in this bad situation. He feels forsaken. He gets delivered at the end of verse 21. And now he's proclaiming God's great salvation to everybody that's aligned with him, everybody that's on his side, everybody that's part of the congregation of the righteous in verse 22 and following. Okay, so um, I'm, I'm, I'm arguing that David is talking about himself aware that he typifies the one to come, aware that he's an installation in the pattern that's going to be fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Jesus, the salvation that God accomplishes in Jesus, all right? Look with me at, you know, if you've got a book, bookmark, stick it here in Psalm 22. Look with me at Isaiah chapter 8. In Isaiah chapter 8, Isaiah... has been confronting King Ahaz. And um, part of the confrontation involves the names that, that Isaiah has been giving his children. So in 7.3, um, the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Sha'ar Jashub. So the exile hasn't happened yet. And um, Isaiah has named this kid Sha'ar Jashub, which means a remnant shall return. Which, which is, you know, a prophecy of destruction is inherent in the name. A prophecy that we're going to get exiled is inherent in the name, a remnant shall return. So Ahaz, he doesn't think they're going to get exiled. And here's this prophet who's named his kid, a remnant shall return. That's going to be an awkward confrontation, you know. When Isaiah walks up and he's like, hi, King Ahaz, have you met my son? His name is a remnant shall return. And Ahaz, you know, he, he's going to know what this implies. And then in 8.1, uh, the Lord said to me, take a large tablet and write on it in common characters belonging to my hair shall all hashbaz. And then Isaiah approaches the prophetess and uh, verse 3, and she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said to me, call his name, my hair shall all hashbaz, which means they're going to plunder us fast. So, so you know, here it is again. They're coming. They're going to they're gonna defeat us. They're going to plunder us fast, and a remnant shall return. So the names are saying, judgment's about to fall. We're about to get exiled. And then there's this other kid in the context here whose name is Emmanuel. With us is God. And this is what he's trying to say to Ahaz, and Ahaz is not getting it. Um, 
Look at, let's pick this up now in 8.11. For Yahweh spoke thus to me, with his strong hand upon me, and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. So at the beginning of chapter 7, Syria, a kingdom to the north, and Ephraim, the northern kingdom of Israel, they, they've joined together, and they're conspiring against King Ahaz to remove him and put the son of Tabil in his place. You read about that all through Isaiah chapter 7. That's the conspiracy in the context. And Isaiah is saying, don't fear what they fear. Because the Lord said through Isaiah, it shall not stand, 7-7, seven, seven, and it shall not come to pass. Verse 13 of chapter 8. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary, and a stone of offense, and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. And then verse 16, bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. Isaiah seems to be saying something like this. I've declared the word of God to King Ahaz. He has rejected it. He and all of his powerful allies, they, they are rejecting my message. So bind up the testimony and seal the teaching, which in Hebrew, the word teaching there is Torah. Seal the Torah among my disciples. So Isaiah's got this small group of people around him who are hearing his word and they're embracing it. And Isaiah says, all right, the culture at large has rejected us, so we're going to preserve the testimony and we're going to preserve the Torah in our little small band of disciples. Verse 17, I will wait for Yahweh who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, verse 18, I and the children whom Yahweh has given me are signs and portents in Israel from Yahweh of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. Now, if we were to go through the rest of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah does the kind of thing that David does in the Psalms. Isaiah speaks of himself, and I think he speaks of himself conscious of the way that he's a type of the one to come. For instance, Isaiah 61, behold, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, and the Lord has anointed me to preach good news, right? Isaiah is speaking in the first person singular, and there's a sense in which the Spirit of God is upon him, and he is appointed to preach good news, but there's another sense in which that's going to be the, fulfilled in the guy that's going to unroll the scroll of Isaiah in the synagogue in Nazareth, 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 um, and read that text and say, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now with all that in mind, look with me over at Hebrews chapter 2. The author of Hebrews, let's pick this up in verse 10. He's talking about Jesus in verse 10, and he says, It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, well, this is God, should make the founder of their salvation, that's Jesus, perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. I think he who sanctified is Jesus. He who sanctifies is Jesus. Those who are sanctified are the people of Jesus. 
The one source is God the Father. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, and now he quotes Psalm 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Now here's, here's the move I think the author of Hebrews is making. He's saying David had a group of, group of people around him that he proclaimed God's salvation to. And thereby David typified Jesus and the group of people around him to whom Jesus would pro proclaim God's salvation. Verse 13, and again, I will put my trust in him. And again, and here he quotes Isaiah chapter 8, the passage that we just read. Behold, I and the children God has given me. So again, I think the analogy is the same. Isaiah had these kids and this remnant of disciples who were embracing his message. And Isaiah was in solidarity with him, with, with them, with that group of people. Jesus has these disciples and in the language of Isaiah 53, he shall see his offspring. He shall see his seed. So in a sense, you know, Jesus has offspring in the, in the people that believe in him. And, and so the author of Hebrews, I think, is, is making the same kind of analogy between David and his people uh, and Jesus and his people that he makes with Isaiah and his people and Jesus and his people. And in both cases... I think that David and Isaiah are conscious of the way that they typify the one to come. And they're conscious of the way that, that they are the key representative for God's people uh, and, that, and that they're the instrumental mediator through whom uh, God is going to deliver his people in their day. And then their role will be fulfilled in the one who is to come. Questions, comments, thoughts, clarifications, objections, disputations, anything you want to... You want to go after in response to what I'm saying here. What I'm trying to propose is a satisfying way to allow David and Isaiah to be speaking of themselves and to explain why the New Testament author takes those words that they spoke of themselves and puts them on the lips of Jesus. And I don't think it's persuasive to say something like, well, David wasn't in fact talking about himself. Because if, if that's the case, then in Isaiah 8, when Isaiah says, I and the children whom God has given to me, and it's clearly talking about She'ar Jashub, Maharshalal Hashbaz, and maybe Emmanuel. In fact, Isaiah is not talking about himself and his kids. Isaiah is, you know, looking into the future and projecting what the Messiah is going to say someday, and I just don't think that's persuasive. So this seems to be just a natural way that David, Isaiah, the read the Bible, why do you think it just, it's, it feels so unnatural for us to see the Bible this way? Uh, because we, I, I think we don't start with the Old Testament. And further, we, we become so thoroughly acquainted with the New Testament, and then we make assumptions about what, those, what we're going to find when we go look up these Old Testament passages that are being quoted. And those assumptions... They're, they're assumptions that derive from our culture, the way we think. We're not thinking the way the biblical authors think. And then when we go to the Old Testament, we get surprised, and this is not what I was expecting to find. And then we start, we start looking for explanations. And, and what too often what people don't do is they don't say, all right, in order to figure out what's going on here, I'm just going to immerse myself in these Old Testament texts, all the while being informed by the way it's it's the New Testament's claiming it's fulfilled. And so 
I mean, John Goldigay, I mean, he's a, he's a very learned man. But in his Old Testament theology, he says something. He's, this is the gist of it. I'm a Christian, and I identify as a Christian. But I don't want my Christian presuppositions to dictate my reading of the, of the Old Testament. And, and my response to that is, look, what you should do is you should subject your Christian presuppositions to the evidence of the Old and New Testaments. If they're right, they ought to actually help your reading of the Old Testament. If they're wrong, reject them and stop being a Christian. But, but don't come to me like a botanist who, who's somebody who studies seeds and acorns and this kind of thing. And don't say to me, well, you know, I know that acorns grow up to be oak trees, but I'm going to act like I don't know that. I'm going to act like that acorn actually might grow into a potato. That's just disingenuous. And any botanist that talked that way, you know what we would say about that botanist? He's a fool. That's stupid. That's what we would say about that botanist. It's obvious what the acorn becomes, you know? So you can dispute that that's actually what an acorn becomes. You can reject that conclusion if you want, but don't come and say, I'm going to act like I don't know. I just don't think that's a very helpful perspective. Um, another thing, though, that I think that I think happens with, with Christians. So there's a, I'm not going to say this guy's name because I respect him and love him. There's a famous New Testament scholar who, um, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to say. He, um, I'll, I, if there's anything that might identify him, it's this. He quotes, he, he probably references more, uh, more, intertestamental extra-biblical literature than almost all other New Testament scholars. Okay, so, you know, you can do with that, with that what you will. I once asked him, I said, um, do, you, do you, like, carefully read and immerse yourself in those sources so that you know them backwards and forwards, and that's what results in all these citations? And, um, and now, in my opinion, that's what you ought to do. Okay? In my opinion, you ought to really understand a document, let's say like Tobit, so that you can understand the inner logic of Tobit and understanding how Tobit, understand how Tobit is interpreting the Old Testament and then what he's saying to his contemporaries so that if you reference Tobit, you actually know what that line you're quoting or referencing or whatever, you actually know what's going on in that book. This guy said to me, oh no, that would take forever. He said, I just use existing cross-references. Which means that what he does is he gets a cross-reference that some other scholar has established or that some you know, index of reference literature has established. And he goes and he looks up the individual line. And then he, if he sees something relevant, he cites it. But he hasn't really understood that line in context. Do you know what I mean? And I think that's what a lot of people do with the Old Testament. They don't really thoroughly immerse themselves in the context of the Old Testament so they come to understand the message of the Old Testament they just reference cross-references. And, and, and as a result, the Old Testament seems like a closed book. Would, do you like the terminology New Testament priority, Old Testament priority? Is there a way to, that you would summarize that better? Or? I mean, um, 
I like that I'm fine with the terminology New and Old Testament if that's what you're asking um, I, I don't feel a need to speak of the first and second testament as though old is somehow pejorative I mean I think the author of Hebrews is calling it the Old Covenant and uh, Paul refers to the Old Testament being read or the Old Covenant being read um, um, I don't I don't think we can give either priority I think there has to be a, a, um, a movement back and forth so we ought to, I think what we ought to do is we ought to say, we ought to come with the, if we're believers in Jesus, we ought to come with the presupposition, okay, Jesus and his apostles, they got it right. And, and that doesn't answer all my questions. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to look at what Jesus and the apostles say, and I'm going to look at what these Old Testament texts say, and I'm going to try to get, I'm going to try to figure out how did we get from here to there? And, and part of that figuring that question out is, really understanding what this Old Testament author intended to communicate um, so that I can understand and, and I'm, I'm guided in that I think by the claims that the later authors make um, so I don't know if I, I'm trying to answer your question yeah other other questions comments thoughts things you want to pursue Pastor Dan is this the official Q&A time yeah we're, we're merging naturally into do you want to Wind up when yeah. you're on, yeah. Because technically we're yeah. to go now with Q&A. Okay. Okay. Um, to wind up, um, I, I I'll just say, I think that this approach, um, coming at this, so so what I'm what I'm alleging here is that Moses, for instance, understood that there were significant events that had happened prior to him, like events that happened with Abraham, that preview or prefigure what would happen in his day. So, so that as Moses records Abraham's um, preview of the exodus from Egypt, Moses knows that the, he's going to also record the exodus from Egypt, and therefore Moses expects exodus pattern-style events to be repeated in the future. Which would mean that uh, Moses knows that the historical events that he's recording have import for the future. They portend what's going to take place in the future. And I would also say that applies to the parallels between Joseph and Moses' own life. Thus, when authors like the authors of Samuel or people like David or Isaiah, when they come along and they pick up those things and they make installations in the typological pattern. They're taking their cues from Moses, who thought these things portended the future, and they themselves also are following the intentions of Moses and making installations in patterns of historical events that the sovereign God is guiding that portend what's going to take place in the future. And thus, uh, the New Testament authors claims that, um, that Adam was a type of Christ, you know, uh, Paul, 1 Corinthians 10, these things happen to them. The ESV renders it as examples, but um, uh, the, the Greek term there is tupikos. These things happen to them, you might say, typologically. And they were written down for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages has, have come. So uh, I think that Paul's claim that these Old Testament events were typological uh, is a claim that is that is in keeping with the intention of the Old Testament authors. So that there's a, there's a correct interpretation 
of earlier scripture all through the Bible. That's 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 where I'll conclude. And I think this applies to Psalm. Uh, to conclude, it applies to Psalm 16. It applies to Psalm 22. I think it applies to um, Psalm 45 and many other texts. It it's at work in those passages when, um, um, like for instance, when Judas is about, about to betray Jesus, and John writes, "This took place to fulfill the scripture." He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I think there was probably a historical traitor that David dealt with, and that that is being fulfilled as Judas betrays Jesus. So we wanted to do here for a few more moments is, is give you a chance to ask a question about anything that's been said or anything other than has been said that you want to uh, talk to either of us about. Uh, Jim's got three out of four, so three out of four questions to go to him. <laughs> but um, I'll weigh in if it's appropriate. That uh, could be from our sessions, but really anything that you'd like to ask him. Thank you. Um, so you just mentioned as you're closing up there that like, even back in Moses and really early, they expected these patterns and these types. Why would they? Well, so with Moses, for instance, um, I think that I think he's he's the first one. At least he's the first. If, assuming that the rest of the Old Testament that attributes the Pentateuch to Mosaic authorship, you know, it's always called the Torah of Moses. Assuming that that is correct, and that Moses um, was not, he didn't have the whole Pentateuch dictated to him on Mount Sinai. I think that. Um, I don't think that's what happened. I think what happened was Moses received from Miriam and Aaron, and I don't know if his parents were gone by that point, but probably other older folks. He received from them traditions of what had happened, and he sorted through all these accounts, and he, and he, and he wrote up what we have in the book of Genesis. And, um, and I think as he puzzled over that material, he noticed similarities. For instance, Adam, um, in the garden, he sins by eating fruit, at which point his shameful nakedness is exposed, and then um, there's, there's cursing and blessing that follows that. Noah um, sins by means of the fruit of the vine, at which point his shameful nakedness is exposed, and then there's cursing and blessing that follows. And there are other things that we could point to that, that would indicate that um, Moses is treating the flood as a kind of decreation. You know, because God has, he separated the waters to cause the dry land to appear. Well, now the waters are closing over the dry land. It's like, a de it's like an undoing of creation. And then in the same way that uh, in Genesis 1, the spirit of God was moving over the waters... Um, in Genesis, I think it's 8, God remembered Noah, and um, he caused a ruach, Elohim, a spirit of God, a wind of God to move over the waters, and as a result, the dry, dry land appears. So it's, it's like there's a new creation when um, Noah gets off the ark. It's almost like, and, and Noah is told, this, I think this is why um, Moses is careful to note that that God spoke the very same things to Noah that he had spoken to Adam. Be fruitful and multiply. 
right? So it's like Noah is a new Adam in a new creation who experiences a new fall, and then there's a new cursing and blessing, and then there's a new, you know, chance at life, even though they're sinners. Um, so I think Moses is seeing these things, and he's like, man, these things keep happening. And then I think this is why the sister fib thing is recorded twice with Abraham and then again with Isaac. I think Moses is, and, and here's what I would suggest to you. If you sit down and read straight through the book of Genesis at one sitting, you will notice language, phrases, lines that are being used and reused over and over and over again. And I think you're supposed to notice that and you're supposed to think about the parallels and, and think about what these things imply about what we can expect about the future. So that's what leads me to say, Moses has noticed these things and he's, he's deducing from what he's noticing, there's gonna be more of this in the future. And that doesn't mean he knows all the specifics, but he's expecting more of the same. So the ones that I'm most familiar with are the ones in the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. I don't, I don't need to look at them. I can just tell you about it. Um, these are people that I think they haven't correctly understood Hosea. And so they, they think that Matthew has generated new meaning when he claims that Hosea 11.1 1 is fulfilled when um, out of Egypt I called my son, when Jesus comes up out of Egypt. And, and what, I, what I mean when I say they haven't understood Hosea, they, they haven't noticed, they haven't read Hosea closely enough to see Hosea is everywhere talking about the new exodus, the second exodus. And he's everywhere indicating that there's going to be this, this pattern where you, the people are going to be exiled, but then God is going to do this new work of salvation. And, um, and as he brought the people out of Egypt and into the land of promise, he's going to do this new exodus in return from exile for them. And the upshot of that is, when you get to Hosea 11.1, 1, right before this, um, at the end of Hosea 10, it says, at dawn, the king of Israel shall be cut off. Now, I think what he's saying, essentially, is the northern kingdom is going to be destroyed. The Assyrians are going to come, and they're going to defeat the northern kingdom. And then he says, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. And I contend that if you understand Hosea's message, what you see him doing is, by referring to the original Exodus, he's implicitly calling to mind the second Exodus. So it's that whole pattern of events, you know, where the Exodus prefigures the new Exodus, and uh, the exile provokes a mention of the original Exodus to say, we're going to have a new Exodus, you know? And if you keep reading in Hosea 11, that's what he says. He says, my people will not go down into Egypt again, but Assyria shall be their king. So he's saying, it's not going to be Egypt. We're going into exile in Assyria, Babylon. Um, so I think if you understand Hosea, what you hear Matthew saying is the person that brings about the new exodus is Jesus. Jesus is the one who's bringing in, in, into being this climactic act of salvation. Does that make sense to, to you? So they're, just, they're, so they're saying yeah. Matthew's doing something that Hosea never intended. That's what they're saying. 
And I think they're saying that because they haven't taken the time to understand Hosea. They've been overly hasty and they've jumped to a conclusion. They've jumped to the conclusion that Matthew put some meaning in those words that Hosea never intended. And they're just, I think they're just wrong about that. And often, what you, when you, if you try to explain something like this to them, they get mad. And the reason they get mad is because they want Matthew to be putting new meaning into the words. Because if he did that, they can do that. If, if, the, if the New Testament authors have put new meaning in, then they can put new meaning in where they need it. And some of the, for some of these folks, where they need it is on some of these like contentious passages. Like, let's say, having to do with homosexuality. You know? If you can put some new meaning in, you can make it where, as long as maybe they're moral in their same-sex relations, it's okay. And so to, to say to them, no, actually, that's not what Matthew's doing. Well, you're undercutting their preferences, and you're, you're upending their agenda. And that's when, you know. So um, I, I, the body of the commentary is written. I have an 800-page Word document on my computer that I'm editing my way through. And I, there, you know, there, um, I have the first draft done, and I'm going back through, and I'm finding places where I need to clean things up. I need to um, add in extra thoughts to make things make sense. And I need to, um, I need to, I need to uh, finish writing the introduction. Um, and I'm hoping that maybe I can finish that by the end of the year. We'll see if I can pull that off. Um, and then once, once I'm finished with it, then it'll go to the publisher. It's Broadman and Holman's commentary series, the, the uh, Biblical Theology for Christian Proclamation. Uh, Lord willing, it'll be a two-volume commentary on the Psalms. So. Um, well, I just add to it. Can you talk a little bit more, a little bit about, like, okay, so Psalm 22, the type points to Christ. But in what way does it type Mm. Thank you. Great question. Um, I think it's as easy as, as quoting uh, Peter. He left us an example that we should follow in his steps. And Jesus even said, take up your cross and follow me. And, and with that, um, you know, we didn't look at Psalm 1 in detail, but um, I talked a little bit about how the, the individual blessed man is like the template or the pattern or the exemplar for the congregation of the righteous so they live like he lives and i think that's the way that it was i think that's the way the king was intended to function in ancient israel the king in a patriarchal society the father is sort of the head of his household and then the patriarch is the head of his clan and then you'll have a patriarch of the tribe and the patriarch of the whole nation is the king and i think that's why when david comes out of the cave on one occasion he says to Saul, my father, my father, you know, why, why are you out here chasing around a dead dog? But he's calling Saul his father, even though Jesse's his father. Well, Saul's the father of the nation, and Saul is supposed to be the exemplary Israelite, but he's not. Um, so, so I think the, the king in the Psalms is the exemplary Israelite. He's the man of the Torah. He's the righteous man. He's, he's got clean hands and an upright heart. And uh, this is who Jesus is. He's the one who lives the way that we should live. And he tells us, you know, take up your cross and follow me. And Peter says, he left us an example that we should follow in his steps. So 
that, that's how I would say we should follow Christ. Two-part question. First, have you, have you, are you familiar with Abner Chow's work at Master Seminary? Because this is along the same line of his new book on hermeneutics. Yes. Okay. Yes. It's excellent. It seems to tie in a little bit. I yep. Abner and I think we're moving in the same direction. Oh, okay, I'm super excited about that. Yeah. <laughs> um, second, second question um, in light of that is um, for, the, for the pastor in the trenches, week in and week out, preaching through the text, coming up with Old Testament quotations and having 17.5 hours left in the week or, or, or 15 hours or, or left, 15 minutes. 15 minutes left in the week yeah. to do a sermon. Yeah. So I put that one first okay. because, because I think what happens to us, this is what happens to me. If I read a commentary first before I do my own work on the passage, yeah. I start thinking in the terms that the commentator has laid down for me. Okay. He, 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 he directs my thoughts. So I want to go to the text first, and then I want to do my best to figure out what I think the text means, and then go look at the commentators. Um... um and then, and then I th there are some people that I trust, you know. So I think that the commentary on the uh, New Testament's use of the old by Beale and Carson is generally good. Um, my favorite Old Testament scholar is uh, Stephen Dempster. And right after him is T. Desmond Alexander. And right after him is Paul House. Um, so these guys, uh, Dempster, Alexander, House... If they've, if they've addressed the passage I'm dealing with, I want to see what they say. Okay. Um, and then on the New Testament side, guys like Beale and Schreiner and um, some others, these are guys that I know are operating with similar kinds of assumptions that I'm making, which is that the bib later biblical authors have rightly interpreted earlier texts. And they're going to try to explain the passage from that perspective. Yeah, well, I, you know, I don't, sometimes, sometimes, I'm not sure, to be honest with you. Uh, I think what he means is, um, I didn't cowardly back away from anything that was going to be controversial among you, but I taught everything that the scriptures reveal. But I don't know, I don't know what the flashpoints would have been in his day. Maybe if we looked at Acts and Ephesians, we might see some things and, and be able to make some suggestions about that. Um, yeah, I mean, I think in some contexts, um, backing down from, from preaching the whole counsel of God might mean, today, might mean avoided passages like Romans 1, 21 and following, and 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10, and these passages that say homosexual behavior is sinful, and and even, I mean, Romans 1, God gave them over to the lust, to the desires of their hearts, you know? So it's even the desire 
for this that is a condemnation. Um, so in other contexts, depending on where you are, backing away from the whole counsel of God might mean not, not teaching people the relationship between divine sovereignty and election and human responsibility and these kinds of things. I'm, I'm not sure what the, what the difficult areas were for Paul in Ephesus. Maybe a, a positive side of it too. I think he left nothing that was structurally necessary mm -hmm. to understand the Bible. He didn't leave off eschatology, mm -hmm. for instance, or something like that. He gave them a structure to understand all of scripture. Could, probably could not have possibly read every word with them, mm -hmm. but they, they, he had, he had a sense, he has prepared them to know the scriptures and study them the rest of their lives. It's probably a minority view, but I have no way to assess that. Um, um, so when I, when I graduated from Dallas, what I had heard when I finished the master's program at Dallas Theological Seminary, what I had heard from my professors was the only thing that validates the interpretation of the Old Testament in the New is the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So I, I just thought that's what everybody thought. And I'm sitting in a PhD seminar with Tom Schreiner and the, the seminar is on 1 Peter, and we get to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, where Peter says, um, uh, concerning this salvation, the, the prophets, uh, I, I, the, the exact wording is escaping me right now, but he's, he's like, um, they, they made careful search and diligent inquiry into the person or time to which the spirit of Christ within them was pointing when they prophesied of the suffering and the glory or you know it's something like that and dr schreiner says um uh i think that the that uh, peter has correctly interpreted the old testament here and that the, the uh, new testament authors are um teaching us how to interpret the old and that they're good models for us and it so surprised me that i almost fell out of my chair i mean i i i i reacted like <sighs> i mean i was like appalled you know who and he's like, what's wrong with you? And I said, I, this is what I said. I said, well, I've never heard anybody legitimate say anything like that. And then he goes, well, maybe I'm not legitimate. <laughs> and then he said, he said, uh, you should go get G.K. Beale's article, Did the Apostles Preach the Right Doctrine from the Wrong Text? And then, and so I went and read that, and Beale you know, that's just sort of the, the fountainhead of the bibliographic paper trail. I started looking at who he was referencing, and I just started uh, chasing down the, the arguments that people were making. So that's what started me on, on this path. And, um, and I, I think that the best evangelical interpreters have always thought this way. So I think, I'm not saying there aren't deviations and variants, you know, but I think sort of the mainstream of, of the remnant across, across church history, they've, even though they might have worded it slightly differently, they've basically gotten it right. I've got a quotation in my Psalms commentary from Jonathan Edwards. 
He doesn't put it exactly the way I put it, that um, David understands himself to be a type. He says something like, I, I can't remember how he says it, but I think we're saying the same thing in different words. Now, that may just be, be wanting, that may be me wanting to identify with Edwards, but I think Edwards is saying what I'm saying. Yeah, I think, I think he understood that the kind of opposition that he was receiving was the kind that Moses received and the kind that Joseph received and probably the kind that his, his uh, seed would receive. I think he wrote Psalm 109 with that in view. And, um, you know, it's interesting. In Second uh, Peter chapter 2, verse 1, Peter says, he says, As there were false prophets among the people, there must be false teachers among you. You know, so it's like, okay, under the, in the Old Testament, when they came out of Egypt, there were false prophets leading people astray. That means, it's like a typological foreshadowing of what will happen. False teachers are going to arise among the church. I'm a cessationist. I think it's significant that Peter doesn't say there will be false prophets among you. Um, I think he expects teachers, not prophets. Um, that's a side note. Um, <laughs> Um, how might, might be a min minority position. That's probably a minority position. Um, <clears throat> how should we pray? I think we should, um, I think we should pray the imprecatory psalms. And I think we should, I think we should pray them against pe people who preach the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Um, I think we, and, and with the imprecatory psalms, I think there's always kind of an implicit um, caveat that says, if you bring judgment upon them and they repent, then show them mercy. But don't let them get away with unrepentant sin. Don't let them propagate evil indefinitely. I'm not sure what I'm going to ask here, so maybe you can improve the question and then answer it. But uh, you, you mentioned Jonathan Edwards, who preached from the Psalms more than any other book except Matthew. Hmm. I didn't know that. Did, uh, Martin Luther. Huh. Both of whom were guys who lived in context of suffering, affliction, mm. pushback. So maybe, you know, both of your presentations this morning, maybe both of you could speak to this, but to what extent do you see the Psalms as something of a pattern or a paradigm for preaching or applying biblical truth to life? Mm. I think that from, from what I understand, um, Luther was encouraged to to teach Psalms, and he taught through Psalms, and then he taught through. He, he started working on Romans, and he had the breakthrough on Romans one seventeen. Yeah, so I I'm inclined to I, I think that that the Psalms are 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 so operating on God's promises and response to the response of faith to those promises, and that. Belief in what God has promised, informing the lamentations and the prayers and the hopes and so forth, that that uh, you know Paul has correctly interpreted Psalm 32 in Romans 4, and so I'm inclined to think that studying the Scriptures would have set Luther up to understand justification by faith when he gets to the Apostle Paul. Um, 
and and I think that the uh, it also teaches us that that uh, the life of the believer is a life of of persevering in faith, even when the evidence seems to be going against what it is that we're hoping in. Um, so that. I mean, I, I would want to read some more Lutheran Edwards, which I haven't done and probably don't have time to do anytime in the near future, but um, that's, my, that's my inclination. Part of why I ask that is because it doesn't seem like Psalms gets depressed if you're very mm. Well, I think, I think in terms of New Testament quotations, I think, I, I think, if I remember correctly, Isaiah is the most quoted and then Psalms, and then maybe Deuteronomy. But maybe just those three are the most quoted texts from the Old Testament in the New. Um, I don't remember how the numbers fall out. But it gets pressed in the New Testament. Yes. <laughs> sure, sure, yeah. yeah. There's an app that Don Whit uh, a student of Don Whitney has developed that's, uh, that, that takes you through five Psalms a day. Praying the Psalms, is that what it's called? Yeah. Five five psalms. Is it called five psalms? It's called five psalms. Yeah. Yeah. His book is great. Yeah. His, yeah. And it doesn't take any consecutive. Oh, it doesn't. It jumps around. Yeah. Every thirty. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Pastor Dan, this is a quick question. I yeah. Wanted. If you only had two commentaries in the Book of Daniel, huh. which would you recommend that would maybe take a little bit of this approach? I know I've read your book. I'm reading it. I'm old. Right. I I like to get uh, one more technical commentary, okay. and then one more expositional commentary. So I would go with um, Andrew Steinman. I think there are two ends on the end. It's in the Concordia. He's a he's a Missouri Synod Lutheran, and he's a very conservative Old Testament scholar. He's really good. I think he's in. Chicago area at one of the Concordia seminaries in Chicago, I think. Uh, he may be at St. Louis, I can't remember. Um, but it is a massive commentary. I mean, like probably close to a thousand pages on Daniel. So I would go with that one, and then I would probably get either something like, I think Dale Ralph Davis has a recent uh, book on Daniel, or I might get Brian Chappell's book on Daniel. I'd get something that was more more pastoral. So I, I, I tend to, if I'm only going to get two, I tend to get something that's technical and then something that's more expositional. better question than I can answer on my seat, but um, I think that there is a sense that, I'll just shoot off the top of my head of what comes to mind, but I, there's a, there's a sense in which serving people uh, is going to be satisfying, 
that doing the right thing and, and receiving the, the support and the blessing of that is going to be fulfilling. And, and, and I don't know that it isn't, but it's obviously not ultimately fulfilling. And there's nobody that would put down on a test, I, I was looking for fulfillment in the, in the praise of man or something like that. But there, there, I think there's a sense where it starts getting lower and deeper to I'm, I'm finding my identity in the response of people. Well, they pop that bubble pretty fast, you know. Uh, the first, uh, the first uh, member that comes to you with a list of, of things you're doing wrong, or um, the, uh, the the sense I preached a pretty good message. I would get scared when I feel that way because it's it's gonna you know somebody's gonna come and tell you you didn't, mm. and and that's and that's a, that that pops that bubble of pride around us or that sense that I really did a good job, uh, something like that. Um, I, I think a disillusioning moment for me was um, 1997. Um, I'm going to give myself to the Word of God, to prayer, to God's people, and to pour out my life and my soul for them. I'm going to get closer to God. And 1997... God evaporated. I don't know why. I couldn't figure out why. I prayed and it was like no prayer worked. I preached and I felt like every sermon was an absolute failure, utterly worthless. And it was, it's yet emotional, which is a weird thing, but I, don't, I can't even explain it. But it was just the God that I loved wasn't there. And it was an entire year. Um, I could not identify sin. I knew I was a sinner. I could list a thousand things where I wasn't what I should be. But I wasn't in rebellion. I wasn't unconfessed. I couldn't identify. I looked at that. I went down that trail for a while. There's something deeply wrong here. No, I couldn't. I, I just couldn't find anything where there was conviction that way. Uh, but it was very disillusioning that, that my life as a pastor was not the essence of my walk with God. I think that's what I learned. I, I cannot explain to you why I'm emotional. It, it makes no sense, does it? A hundred years ago. <laughs> I, I'm no good at math, but whatever 97 <laughs> was. Uh, it, it just was a really, really hard, dark time. And, and I, I think that was a valuable time to be disillusioned of the idea that pastoral ministry was my closeness to God. I, I don't look at it even now and say I had something totally wrong and God blew it apart. But it was just a reminder that my relationship with him is not connected to my shepherding of people. Although there's another way of saying that it is. And it needs, and, it, and, it, and most of it's hugely beneficial as I'm preparing sermons and working with people and praying and bringing the church before the Lord. I am drawing close to him through that. But I, I just think it was kind of to say, that's not it. That, that, that's not what our relationship is, just you coming as a pastor to me, but it's you coming as my son. Those are things that, that come to mind. Um, 
certainly the uh, foolish perceptions that we have of what's going to work, how it ought to work, um, how you you think. Uh, I, th I think energies. If I put a, a, an amount of work into this, it will fly, and that bubble gets popped real fast. You know, you can put work into things that never accomplish anything. And then there's things that, some of the best things that happen, you didn't do anything to do it. Right. You have no claim to it at all. Um, those are ones that come to mind. Where do you fall on the covenant dispensational spectrum as a, as a biblical theologian? Yeah, um, I appreciate what my colleagues are advocating with this. They call it progressive covenantalism. Other people call it new covenant theology. I'm fine. I, I like that. Yeah, I like what they're saying. It's kind of, I would say it's between covenant theology and dispensationalism. So that if, if dispensationalism is heavy on discontinuity and covenant theology is heavy on continuity, I think new covenant theology is where the Bible is. <laughs> you heard it here. Yeah, or, or progressive covenantalism, you know, however you want to describe it. Uh, as you went through the Psalms, how they interpret the Old Testament, you brought up some things that I hadn't seen before about the, you know, the uh, crushing the head of the serpent and those things. Uh, one of the key stories, of course, in Genesis is the fall, the story of Adam and Eve. And I was just trying to think, is that alluded to in the Psalms? Um, I don't, I can't think of a place like that line in Hosea 6 where it says, um, like Adam, they sinned. Um, but I think that, so I think that the Psalms and, and really the whole Bible everywhere assumes uh, the fall. And the, 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 real, the, evi the evidence for this is the fact that everybody wears clothes. Everybody everywhere wears clothes, you know? There's not, so Peter ends, he wants to suggest that even in the book of Genesis, uh, when you get to Noah and he's a blameless man and he walks with God, he, he responds to that by suggesting that maybe Moses is showing that not everybody has been affected by Adam's fall. In response to which I, I would say, well, what he needs is a group of people living naked and unashamed in the garden in the direct presence of God. That's what he needs. If, if, you're, if you want to claim that not everybody has been affected by the, by the fall. And so I think that the alienation that so often crops up in the in the Psalms is reflecting the fact that we've been driven out of God's presence. Um, so, I, but I can't think of a I can't think offhand of something that directly alludes to. I mean, I think a lot of the places where you have, like the language of son of man um, or sons of men, I think it's helpful to translate those sons of Adam. Or son of Adam. But I can't think of an instance where the fall is directly referenced. I couldn't either. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Jim, we are grateful for your ministry to us. Uh, thank you as um, a church, but thank you for these churches represented here and each one that's gathered, it's just been a, a blessing to, to hear you expound scripture, to talk through things that we've got to think about and how we discern the, the, the truths that are there. 
Um, I think for the guys that are going back and are going to crack out the commentaries here this week and write a sermon for Sunday, uh, it's just a good reminder to us of the foundations that are there in, in the Old Testament. And I would encourage us, uh, we need to be familiar with the whole Bible, not just the New Testament. And, uh, we, memorize the New Testament if you can, but memorize it in the, in the, in the soil, in the garden of the Old Testament. Uh, that's there for a reason. It's foundational to us, and I don't even like to use that word. But in some sense, it, it is it chronologically foundational to everything that's there. And this is I mean, how can you not be inspired to uh, study the Psalter, to understand uh, the connections to the New Testament? And um, uh, but I think we need to be encouraged. And, and as Jeff, I really feel what you're saying that it's so hard to think of how can you do all of that time-wise. We have to find the, the ways we can by connecting the people that have written on these things. But I, I think just the awareness of it uh, takes us back to what are the what are the roots, what does the what does the concept say, and the the commentary you mentioned, use of Old Testament and the New, but then commentaries that bring us out. We just want to be searching for them and striving to do the best we can. I would encourage us to don't try to be cute. I, I think what what he's done here is, is I, I mean, I, I appreciate it. I think it's good. Um, I think he's demonstrated that all that's in the New Testament, quoting the old, is is treating the old with integrity. It's truly interpreting what's there, not just assigning some meaning to it. But I think we need to be cautious as pastors. Make sure somebody said it, you know, or you check it with somebody, as opposed to just kind of coming up with some neat idea that I have here. Uh, but but don't be afraid to think that way and pursue that way. And it's really exciting when you see something and you didn't read it, and then you go somewhere and see somebody else confirm it. So that, that's, that's probably a safe thing, but um, I think we've been helped so much and thankful for just your servant heart, your willingness to leave a lot of precious things back in Louisville to come and spend some time with us out here in the hinterland. And please send the message. It's not all igloos. So, so, people think that from time to time. But let me pray for Jim and, and pray for all of you. Again, we appreciate your being here. You can just fly. You guys got to get out of here and beat rush hours. So don't worry about moving anything. If you're able to stay as, a, as somebody that's in Eden here, Maybe you could ask, but don't worry about that. We'll take care of it. Just go, and thank you for being here. Lord, we pray that Jim and all of us here would have safety and travel this afternoon. He's got a long journey ahead of him, and I pray that you'd give him opportunity to just refresh and read along the way. And as he enters back into his normal world here late tonight, by your grace, I pray that you would allow it to be a reunion with the family of joy and thanksgiving. And, um, I, I pray that his family would have a sense that they have been part of this, that they have parted ways with him for a short time, but it's, it's not easy, and I pray that they'd rejoice in the good that has come, and I pray that you would continue to do good through, these, uh, through this teaching. Bless him in his labors, continue to steer him to see your truth rightly, and to be faithful to it, and to proclaim the whole counsel of God without fear, as he's just mentioned here a few moments ago. May that be our, our task, to defend the truth that's been entrusted to us and to know that in your word there is a precious trust. And I pray that we would love it 
and grow in it and be changed by it. May Jesus be praised in each of our lives. In his name we pray. Amen.